welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest today is Chris McElwain, an attorney in Tuscaloosa who is also a Civil War historian of Alabama. He has two books that have come out back-to-back from University of Alabama Press, Civil War Alabama, published in 2016, and Alabama, 1865, published in 2017. Chris, thanks for being with us today. Great to be here. These two books feel like they're part of the same project. Can you talk about that? Yes, the research on these two books started over 25 years ago and involved a painstaking examination of just about every primary source material available for the Civil War period, as well as decades before the war, decades after. The manuscript produced by that was about 2,500 pages long, and so I broke it down where we have the Civil War Alabama which runs from right around John Brown's raid and concludes right around Wilson's raid. Then after the first one was published and it did well, they agreed to publish the rest of it. And so that's what 1865 Alabama is. Subtitle of that is From Civil War to an Uncivil Peace. So they are related. It looks like that they have two slightly different theses, that the first one appears to be about the lawyer's war, and then the second one you break down into three areas. What did you mean by the wild politicians, many of whom were lawyers, who promoted secession, and the generals of the press, both of those are in quotes, for spewing out misleading war propaganda? The two books actually have the same underlying theme. This was all a bad idea. In the first book, had a lot of people who were trying to prevent the South from seceding. Several people here in Tuscaloosa, prominent people, several prominent slave owners. They knew what was going to happen, and what they predicted everyone would happen did happen. Every single instance of it. The people that were just on fire about seceding was a faction of the legal profession. There was another faction of the legal profession that was opposed to secession. The lawyer that everyone points to is William Yancey, of course, and he was certainly one of what people have called fire eaters. He was a Montgomery lawyer. The secessionists had, through their rhetoric, and aided by John Brown's raid and the implications of that, This is going to keep happening, especially if a Republican is elected. Those people got secession through. Then the folks who were opposed to secession continued to try to get secession off the tracks. After the ordinance was passed, there was a state election that a lot of people forget in August of 1861. And what they were planning to do was run a prominent candidate for governor and also prominent candidates for the legislature to try to reverse the process didn't happen. And the reason why it didn't happen is because they opened fire in Charleston Harbor and the war was off. 
the generals of the press was a phrase coined by John Forsyth of the Mobile Register. Although he was a moderate before Lincoln was elected, he was very much of a total pro-war, die-in-the-last-ditch kind of guy. He was probably Alabama's top propagandist in terms of everything was good, nothing's wrong, no reason to worry, be happy, because we're going to win this war. Every once in a while, he would allow his true feelings to come out, and you can see that in his editorials. But each time there would be people thinking about backsliding, he would come in with criticisms and lambasting folks. Classic example, the 1863 state election, you had a union precinct over here in Greene County, and on their ballots wrote in the name Reconstruction, which sent Forsyth into backflips. He was so mad. You have that kind of political pressure on the politicians, and it makes it very difficult to kind of rein the horse in. So that's the lawyers and the propagandist side of it. Chris, what about the second book? The second book picks up after the Confederate defeat at Nashville, which was absolutely devastating because Sherman is churning his way up toward Virginia. Jefferson Davis has to send the remnant of Hood's army to the east. So Alabama is a quacking giant duck sitting there waiting to be shot. In the 1865 book, the first section of it is called The Final Doom of Slavery. It's post-Nashville. The pressure is at its highest point for peace talks. Lincoln is ready to deal. A lot of things that I included have been ignored by some of the Lincoln biographers. If the war would stop, he was willing to allow for gradual emancipation He was willing to talk about compensation to the slave owners. And finally, there was a covert effort being made during the spring of 1865 to find a colony to send the freed slaves to. The plan was that once the war is over, rather than allow 150,000 black troops to just go home, they're going to send them to to Panama and begin building the canal that people have been talking about for decades. Another irony of all of that is that he buttonholed Benjamin Butler, who you would think would never agree to that, to be the head of that organization. What he was wanting from Lincoln was for the federal government to stop investigating him for stealing funds. So Lincoln had him over a barrel. Lincoln was just a darn crafty guy. But the problem was Jefferson Davis. There was going to be the Hampton Roads Conference in February of 1865. The South sent commissioners down to it. Lincoln came personally. Seward came personally. So they didn't just send some nobodies down there. The Confederacy didn't send nobodies, but they didn't send Jefferson Davis. And that's the problem. We lawyers know that if you're going to settle a case, you got to have decision makers from both sides in the room. And if you can get them in the room, you might be able to settle it. If they're not in the same room, you will never settle it because it's the decision maker. He's not going to know what's going on. He's not going to hear the discussion and things. 
And so they could never get any authority from Jefferson Davis beyond independence. So after four years of war and we're able to spend a total of four hours trying to get out of this bloody war, that failed. That doomed slavery because in order to retain it, it's going to have to be part of a package deal. It was going to take a few more months, obviously, but as a practical matter, that was the end of it. But that's not the end of the matter, is it? The second part of the book relates to the industrial economy in Alabama. There was industry in the northern part of the state. It had all been destroyed, though, by mid-1863. The main industrial base for Alabama in 1865 was the industrial corridor that included Jefferson County going down to Dallas County. There were coal mines, there were iron forges, all this sort of stuff. And they were sending things down to Selma where they were fabricating weapons and other war material. If Alabama could have retained that after the war, Alabama would be way ahead of all of the other states because the next phase of the Industrial Revolution was railroad. They were laying tracks going to California. There was a lot of iron to be made and sold. And to do that, you've got to have blast furnaces and all that stuff. That costs a lot of money. But the Confederacy had built a lot of that stuff. And if Alabama could have kept it during peacetime, they would be way ahead of the game. To make that happen, though, since Jefferson Davis had taken the stance he had taken, Alabama was going to have to cut a deal for a separate peace. There were unionists from North Alabama that went down to Montgomery in the spring of 1865 to try to talk the governor, Thomas Hill Watts, into making an overture and try to reach a deal. He wouldn't hear of it. He was as snakes in his brain as Jefferson Davis was at this point. It was an unwinnable situation. There's no way he could save Alabama, but he just wasn't going to capitulate just to save the state. And Wilson's raid follows not long afterwards, as does Croxton's jump through Tuscaloosa, and there goes the industrial base. The only thing really left is that the state theoretically still had sovereignty over several things. Most importantly, who could vote? Also, equal rights, the federal government couldn't get involved in that sort of stuff. How did Alabama rehabilitate itself? Well, in order to prevent constitutional amendments from being passed, the first thing that the South had to do was get back into Congress so they could vote against them. If they had succeeded in doing that, they could have probably prevented adoption of the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment, of course, relates to voting rights. Well, they did just about everything wrong to prevent that. I'm talking about Alabama. If they had just gotten back into Congress, well, loyalty to the United States was the key. Conversely, evidence of disloyalty would keep you out. So what happened? Lincoln is murdered. Blacks were mistreated. There were concerns about Confederate soldiers, rather than returning to their homes, going to Texas and then Mexico, regrouping and coming back out. One of the people most concerned about that was General Grant. Lincoln had been very afraid that that was going to happen as well. 
Lincoln had also been very afraid that a guerrilla war would break out afterwards. And that was a, a more serious concern than I think most historians have seen it. It was extremely serious. I found newspapers out in Texas calling for Confederate soldiers to come join everyone in northern Mexico. Grant wanted to send an army down. Johnson and the rest of the cabinet wouldn't let him do that, but that's how serious he was about it, is until we clear this out, then there will never be peace. In Alabama, in Mobile, there was a huge explosion that initial reports indicated was set off by Confederates. Then come the elections for people to go into the Constitutional Convention, and then after that, into the legislature. There was a federal statute that prohibited anyone who had been disloyal from receiving any federal seat. So what did they do? They picked Confederates with great war records to elect. It was, again, John Forsyth, the general of the press, saying, don't regard that. They're not going to enforce that. And he was in touch with Northern Democrats who have gotten a huge pass for this period. They were encouraging him to encourage Alabamians to send us real Democrats. We don't want pseudo-Democrats up here either. During that same time, you had the black laws being passed around the South. You know, in Alabama, the main law that made it past a veto by the governor was a vagrancy law. And that didn't sit well with Northerners because what they were looking at is, we've seen this movie before. You know, it, it looks like slavery is being reestablished. It looks like people are still hostile and that we're going to have serious conflict in Congress, just like we had throughout the 50s. This is not a good idea to let them in. That's exactly what happens. They don't get let back in. In the ensuing years, Congress approves the 14th Amendment, sends it to the states for ratification. Same thing later happens to the 15th Amendment. All southern states except Tennessee refuse to ratify the 14th Amendment. That enraged people. All that constitutional provision said of any significance was that people were going to have to be treated equally. And they didn't want to do that, because that's just not the way it was done back then. Congress was so enraged that they adopted the Reconstruction Acts that totally reformed the state governments, put the Republicans in charge of the way the state was going to work. The Republicans ratified the 14th Amendment. You won't hear anybody saying that now, but it was the Republicans that were doing that. And the Republicans also ratified the 15th Amendment when it came out. So basically, the, those two amendments, which are the most significant in the nation's history since the Civil War, wouldn't have gotten passed if the South had been in Congress. How does your book deal with this? There's a chapter in there called The Legacy of 1865 that talks about all of that and kind of brings it up into modern times. But I will tell you, as a lawyer... The Voting Rights Act is important, but the 14th Amendment is by far the most significant because it is the basis of most civil rights laws. But that's the sum and substance of it. What motivated you to start working on this magnum opus? 
Years ago, there was a lawyer here that I admired greatly that was elected to the circuit court. There were all these things in the newspaper about first Republicans since whenever to get elected circuit judge in this county. And I just got interested in that period, you know, what went on. And I went upstairs after lunch one day into our library and pulled out some of our case books and started reading some of the opinions. And there was all this stuff about the Civil War in it. That's not something that I was used to because, you know, typically they don't teach us that in law school. You know, they try to teach you what the current law is and all that. So I just got the bug, and I was going to write a little article on the Reconstruction Supreme Court, and the rest is history. Sounds like many projects, it grew completely out of control. Totally out of control. You can ask my wife. I know at one time you were very interested in seeing newspapers digitized. What I tried to do was to get the University of Alabama and the archives in, in Montgomery to joint venture that and have all of the Alabama newspapers on the internet. The Library of Congress has newspapers from all these other states. And the reason why it has these other states is like a state like Georgia has done the project and then uploaded it all to the Library of Congress, which is great because we can all use it. They finally put up the Civil War years what they've been doing is adding to it going through the Reconstruction years. They've got a tremendous amount that's on there. Now, it's not word searchable, so that's one of the drawbacks. But, you know, when I was looking through the microfilm, that's not word searchable either. But if I could sit at home and go through a newspaper, you can go through them real quick, see if there's anything worthwhile in there. I would submit that the history of Alabama has been written to a degree of about 12%. There are more stories out there and more incidents and events that would be of interest to people. But you got to dig. I know a lot of folks, they shied away from newspapers for years and years. If you don't just look at one, people just looked at Montgomery Advertiser. Back during this period, they weren't even the best newspaper in Alabama. Mobile was when Forsyth is there. That's clearly the best newspaper in the state. Now, if you're trying to write a history of the state, you got to look at all of them. And you'll find stuff in nooks and crannies in these small newspapers that you didn't know about. And then you research those incidents in other areas and find support for what's in that newspaper. And typically, that's how I start a project. Look through the newspapers. I didn't do that then. I read a bunch of the secondary sources. They were just so confusing because you couldn't even do a timeline. You notice in my books, there are timelines in them all. That's why it was there is because if somebody's come along later, you can have your own timeline for that or you at least have a place to start. Start with the newspapers and get your timeline from that. Then you can judge whether the secondary sources are worth a darn. I never, in either of those books, cited a book that I had not confirmed through primary source material was accurate on the point I was citing it. 
Did you use other primary sources to judge the validity of the secondary source, or did you go back to the primary sources that the secondary source used itself? Went back to the primary sources. Yeah, through the book. So you check their own primary sources. Yeah, and and it's, you know, that's a good exercise. George Rabel told me one time, he said, you've got to cross-examine your sources. I had already learned that because I had read some of these secondary sources on the Civil War, and they weren't matching up to what I was finding in the primary sources. They're great in that they have the citations there. So you can go back and look. Even then, you've got to be careful about, has that author cherry-picked primary source material just to try to prove a point and left out some facts that undercut you know, what they're trying to argue? Even if they're not cherry-picking, you just can't put everything in. True. Very true. Yeah. That's unfortunate. If you're trying to get a book published at a publisher, give you a word count, and you've got to get under that, well, what do you do? What are you going to take out, and how is that going to affect the validity of what you're saying? The editors that I've dealt with, it's a negotiation. You know, how many words do I get, and can we do it in this, and we allow me that? I don't want to leave it out because somebody may need that. One of the reviews of the Civil War Alabama book was, I don't know the guy's name, never met him, but he was effusively praising it because it had all of these citations. But like I say, you can't put it all in there. The Civil War Alabama book was originally over 2,000 pages. Well, there's a lot that I hadn't published yet. I am going to dribble it out probably in Alabama Review articles, like this C.C. Clay article that was in the last Alabama Review, just because I found those stories interesting. They're accurate, but, you know, you don't see that much in books. So put it out there. Somebody that's researching 10 years from now may find it useful. For our listeners who don't know you, tell us a little bit about your background. I was born in Chattanooga. Raised in Huntsville, my father was the proverbial rocket scientist. He worked with Werner von Braun. I graduated from Grissom High School, which was a very good high school back then, and I think still is, and came here to the University of Alabama in 1973. Got my undergraduate degree and then got my law degree, graduated from the law school here in 1980. And so I've been practicing now for 38 years since 1980. I've got a wife, Anna, and two children, Christopher and Elizabeth, and several grandchildren that I'm very proud of. What kind of law do you practice mostly? I do a lot of litigation, mostly on the civil side. I don't represent criminals and I don't get involved in divorce cases, but just about everything else. I call it dispute resolution. This morning, we were mediating a case involving a civil rights allegation. Yesterday, I was working on a brief to the Alabama Supreme Court in a commercial case. So it's just a variety of civil things, but they all boil down to just people are disputing things. They have to be resolved. And the mechanism in the United States is is to do it through litigation. I typically don't sue anyone. I'm a defense lawyer, but... I recognize two things. One, if there are no plaintiff's lawyers, all the defense lawyers go out of business. More importantly is, what other mechanism do you really want? Is it trial by battle? Because that's the way the Civil War was resolved. 
today, some of those issues could have been resolved in the courts, but they weren't. And so as a result, you know, you have several hundred thousand people die. Well, I kind of prefer that not to happen. Chris, have I left anything else? I think you've got it all. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.